Welcome to the Dev Ready Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Andrew Grant yet again. He was on um, a couple episodes uh, back in 2021, episodes 72, 3, and 4, around who killed creativity. We did a nice little three-part series around creativity and a brilliant book that he put together, and a bit of a game around the creativity piece. Um, today, Andrew's joining us yet again, um, talking a little bit more about a book, The Innovation Race, and all around innovation leadership and how we make that more sustainable. Andrew, thank you, thank you again for joining us, and welcome to the Ready Podcast. Great to be back. Andrew, just for people that haven't heard episode 72, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I've, uh, we're a husband and wife team that met in high school, so we've been around for quite some time now. And we've been working, uh, originally worked with not-for-profit and then ended up moving into corporate, basically helping people with leadership and team skills. About 15 years ago, we started to look at the concept of creative thinking and design thinking and wrote a book on creativity called who Killed Creativity, uh, looking at the psychological blocks of the things that block creativity, because there's plenty of books out there on how to be creative. And then uh, a couple of years following that, we started looking at innovation and innovation leadership. And my wife's PhD uh, was on innovation leadership or sustainable innovation or what's now described as ambidextrous leadership. And from then, we've really been working hard, researching uh, what we think is groundbreaking research on how to become a, a sustainable leader when it comes to innovation. We hear lots and lots about the innovation gurus uh, that are always mentioned in the media, but I think that's only half the picture. So we're really wanting to, to bring the concept of what does it mean to be long-term sustainable innovation, not burn out, not fade out, but actually get through and, and bring to market a sustainable company, lead a sustainable company, whether it's uh, very big or very small. The research has been fascinating. We've, we've um, looked at over 70 companies globally uh, and interviewed over 70 CIOs, uh, Chief Innovation Officers, asking them what their concept of sustainable innovation is. But it's fun. You can also go back as far as ancient Egypt and Rome and Greece and ask yourself, they were innovative uh, cultures back then. Um, what happened? So it is uh, why we've called this the innovation race. It is not, not that I particularly like the concept of competitive race, but everyone else seems to talk about a race. But it is a concept that we do need to look at, that what companies, countries and cultures um, win, lose, or get eliminated should we dribble it down to a reality TV show metaphor. Um, but the concept's interesting because it doesn't matter whether you look at current companies or cultures or existing ones in history. There are some principles that you can see whether you go back thousands of years or go come as far forward as some of the leading companies now. The principles are the same. And if we can take those principles, whether we're big or small, um, we'll be much more likely to lead long-term sustainable innovation. Well, that probably digs into what are... So from that interview of 70 people, 70 chief innovation officers, what's some of the big things that came from them and what did you find some of the insights as you went through that process? Well, what we, what if we, if we, we I was going to go back 3,000 years, but we'll, we'll get to some of those mm -hmm. cultures in a minute. But yeah. what we discovered was that about 60 years ago, some researchers did look at and identified cultures that were producing an unusual concentration of creative geniuses, and they called them creativogenic cultures. And these cultures have popped up in different locations over time from the Renaissance period. Um, and the researchers uh, tried to identify key factors that led to innovation. And they came up with uh, what's called paradox theory or amb amb ambidexterity. And basically, you had leaders that were focusing on exploration. And the concept of exploration is about um, looking for big ideas, breakthrough ideas, which is tends to what we see in the media a lot. And let's put that down the left side of, of the road. Um, but they also discovered that innovative companies were very good at preservation, which was focusing on incrementally building systems and structures for stability. And the, the big breakthrough here is that leaders or companies that only focused on exploration, uh, on openness to breakthrough and new ideas, if they only focused on that, they would skid off, if we're using the concept of racing down a road, they would skid off to the left. 
And, of course, the leaders that only focused on preservation, small incremental breakthrough ideas, well, these are the companies that don't exist anymore because they got disrupted by the innovative market. Now, unfortunately, the media tends to love to focus on the exploration leaders. We hear about them every day. We read about the exploration companies every day. Um, the problem with that is we don't read about survivorship bias. We don't read about the companies that explored and never made it. So there might be for every for every you know Elon Musk or, or Bezos or, or whatever there might be hundreds or millions of of people that were almost that close. I mean we know that Steve Jobs got kicked out of Apple several times and it went for a couple of twists of fate. Uh, we might never have heard of him. Same with Richard Branson. His airline went bust a few times. Again, if there weren't a couple of twists of fate, and if you read his book, he says a, a couple of lucky, lucky decisions, uh, he would have been gone. So we've got to be really careful of survivorship bias and not just worship these gurus that seem to be told, you know, a risk-take, explore, go out there, come up with breakthrough ideas. Not that it's not important, but the real issue here is the ability to balance the ambidexterity between exploration and preservation. Now, I don't know this being a podcast without slides going down deeper than that could be dangerous, but there are then inside the exploration four what we call nested dimensions, and they are flexibility, collaboration, and openness and freedom. And so they are, they are dimensions that will help you guide. So you need flexibility, you need collaboration, you need openness, and you need freedom. And then on the preservation side, uh, the four nested dimensions is you need a certain level of control, a certain level of focus, a certain level of independence, and a certain level of stability. And so you could run those four uh, guardrails up the left side of the road and the right side of the road, realizing that these are these are what we need. And and in in one sense, you actually, if if you look at the two that oppose each other, let's say control and freedom. You need a certain, obviously, a certain level of freedom within the company to make decisions, to take risks, to, to, to try things and fail. But too much freedom ends up in chaos. If you just had a company that just said, hey, let's just, um, let's just be free and everyone do what they like and explore and do whatever you like, too much freedom ends up in chaos. So there needs to be, to balance that freedom out, a degree of control. Uh, but then too much control ends up in oppression. So if we if we use that racing car line or that 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 the, the racing track, you could see that the 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 two um, guardrails are going to be freedom and control. But off this side of freedom is chaos. If you if you skid off that side of the road, you'll end up in chaos. And if you skid off this side of the road, the control side of the road, you'll end up with oppression. And so a really good leader will actually choose their strategy choose the way they lead their team, recognising there are times we need to promote and encourage exploration, and I'll use just that one nested dimension of freedom, and there are times we need to use that um, preservation side of, hey, guys, we're going too fast. We might skid off the road and end up in chaos. Uh, we may need a certain degree of control to make sure we go forwards. So in saying that, do you see a type of leader that picks one over the other? or is it All like the time. The and this is the... <laughs> yes. uh, this this is the, the the core of what our research and our workshops and our coaching is all about is to help uh, leaders first of all recognize like like any profiling what their what their natural bias is. Um, unfortunately, leaders left unchecked if it's unconscious will not only follow their natural bias and think it's great because we're all very self confident, but they'll tend to pick a team that is also. Uh, yes, man. I mean, you know, there's that great story of make Mark happy in, in Meta, Facebook, um, and making Mark happy cost $13 billion uh, um, yep. in 2000, in 2022 because Mark decided he wanted to get into the metaverse and he literally raced off down the left side of the road of freedom, uh, but in a controlling style. So he didn't want to invite anyone else in, but people were a little bit too scared to talk to him, according to what we've read. And he raced off at, you know, at, at 100 miles an hour down the side of freedom, exploring, exploring, exploring. And $13 billion later, uh, he's, you know, sort of gone off the gone off the left-hand side of the road into that chaos. And really, no one quite knows where he's going or what he's doing now. He may have $13 billion to throw around um, and therefore it might have been a conscious decision. But most of us 
don't have $13 billion to throw no, around. And um, if we skid off the road too far because we're embracing the exploration freedom side too much, uh, before we know it, we will end up going into the chaos or, or um, no direction or, or groupthink or, or um, you know, no outcomes and, and blow that money. So it's really, really important for a leader to understand where their bias is. Are they more biased towards the exploration side or are they more biased to the preservation side? Uh, where their bias is, where their team is, um, where their culture is. So we, we like to plot people on a road. Uh, you could also plot them on where they've been, their, their past state of a company, uh, where they are now and where they need to go. So it may well be that when we started the company, we needed to really go down that exploration side of the road and just explore and try ideas. And you see companies go through this sort of transition and then Exploring, exploring gets very expensive very fast and it might be time now to bring in some rules. Uh, we worked with a very luxury boutique resort that was $5,000 a night and this was the person that invented the concept of villas. Um, and it was all about, you know, breathe your personality into the hotel and, and let it let the hotel reflect the culture of the, of the, of the country it was in. But... After they started building more and more hotels, they realised they needed to bring in a standard operations manual. And the founder said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. But they realised that they had to bring in some sort of controls and uh, principles to, to, to give the hotel a level of branding. And so you could see that that hotel was started off down the very left-hand side, the exploring side of the road, and then realised after a couple of years they probably need to move across to the controlling side with some, um, with some branding coming in. So, yes, I think it's really important that leaders know that. Is there sort of like an even split from all the people you've interviewed over 50-50 or something like that? My bias telling me the exploratory is probably attracting more people just because it's the green fields, blue oceans, the exciting stuff, the new things. It's not the day-in, day-out process management. <laughs> It's it's probably bias of who who comes to our workshops or what leaders sign themselves up to a keynote talk. But I suppose anyone that's going to sit in a conference on innovation is much more likely to be the explorers, if we wanted to call them the explorers and the preservers. Yeah. But the danger there is they come to these you know two or three day off sites. They hear inspirational speaker after speaker talk about how they explored and they took a risk and they went down this side of the road and they failed and they got back up and you know and then you get the Everest climber that also took a risk or the sports adrenaline person and then these people go back absolutely pumped up back into their workplace to realize that possibly 50 percent of the um of their workplace are conservative preservers and and they're saying come on guys you're not in you're not you're not inventing you're not innovating and that causes terrible tension and so one of the one of the big things that, that my partner Jaya has looked at is the tension between the explorers and the preservers and to, what we've discovered is that tension is in any company. Every company will have a healthy tension of those that want to explore and, you know, come up with breakthrough ideas and those that want to just say, hey, slow down, we're going too fast. Now, if that tension is not checked between, the, say, the CEO and the COO or the sales team, which is exploring, and the finance team, which is probably more preserving, if that tension is not managed, it will actually rip the company apart. So one, we have to acknowledge that tension is there. We have to acknowledge that tension is healthy. And we have to use that tension between those that want to explore and those that want to preserve to actually pull us forward rather than rip us apart. So we are often unfortunately called into companies once that tension has ripped the company apart. Uh, Jaya's research was actually on a company with a founding entrepreneurial CEO that was, you know, absolute genius in terms of what he did. His vision was amazing. Uh, like all founding CEOs, his passion was phenomenal. But as the company grew, his management style sucked, basically. His leadership style was not great. He couldn't drag people along with him. He, he moved at too much of a lightning pace 
And he didn't really have the EQ to motivate people. He was just so focused on doing what he did. And by the way, it was a great cause. Won't say who it was, but it was a very, very altruistic cause, what he was doing. There was a stage where uh, a letter went to him, as often happens, and says, we're all resigning. Um, and he almost pretty much lost his team. Now, he was smart enough then to bring in a COO or a, or a GM, I suppose you could call it, and he recognised that the, GO, the GM was the um, preserver. And they worked together to realise that he was the visionary, the explorer, but he had to respect the preserver. And there's some great transcript that Jay has taken of the conversations between the two of them uh, as, she, as she researched and watched. And, and as you hear his words, the explorer words, you hear all these words that we're going to charge out, we're going to move, we're going to vision. And then as you hear the GM, the preserving's words, he's talking about, you know, pulling back, making sure everyone's ready for the change. And so when that works together well, it works brilliantly. But when it doesn't work together well or you've got two explorers and no preservers, you'll just take everyone off the, off the side of the road and they'll crash. In my head, I'm thinking of similar to Steve Jobs. In my yes. head, sort of runs down the middle, very exploratory, but very controlled and preserving what I was doing until they, they made the new path on the left and then now they preserve that path. Well, this is a really interesting case study because Apple was at its best with Steve Jobs and Tim Cook because you had Steve Jobs. Now, Steve's interesting because he was a controlling leader, but in terms of his culture and his vision, he was he was exploratory off the charts, but he was bloody good at it. So, <laughs> I mean, some people are exploratory, but shocking. Uh, he, have, you know, that's why we hit, treat him as a genius. Uh, we won't get into his leadership style because that was very controlling. So he was a paradox within himself. But if you take the relationship between Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, so there's some great little memes out on the internet of all the inventions that happened under Steve Jobs and all the inventions that didn't happen under Tim Cook. And yet Apple is, is still the most successful company in the world. Um, but they were best when they worked together because one was exploring and racing off and charging and the other one was preserving and tightening. Now, Tim Cook is not big on inventions, and there's some interesting research about that. But what he's very good at is tightening, buying, procurement, procedure. Um, so we tend to, again, think of Steve Jobs as the innovative leader. Tim Cook's not. Not true. They're both innovative. But you could say Tim Cook is very much innovating on the preserving side of the road, where Steve Cook's innovated down the exploring side of the road. Now, where will Apple go without Steve Jobs? It's going to be interesting. It's, it's, it's been a few years, we all know. Um, but, you know, Johnny Ives has also said that, that Apple seems to have lost its cutting edge of inventing the things. I mean, people might say, well, it's saturated. There's nothing more to invent. But, hey, I, I read a Harvard Business Review years ago when Motorola brought out the flip phone saying that's as far as it'll go. You know, we don't know what we don't know. So without Steve Jobs, we don't know what he might have come up with. But what we do know with Tim Cook is we're not seeing radical inventions and innovations coming up every day or every year, but he's still successful because he's tracking down the preserving side of the road and tightening things really well. Yeah, his innovation is what more people consider probably the boring part of a business. Exactly. Making sure the gears are turning and they just Absolutely. keep turning and just slowly grow them rather than trying to chuck in a whole new thing and disrupt. That's a necessity in any business, right? If you have Absolutely. That, and, and this is why Apple will, for, for the time being, I mean, whether it can continue to survive without big breakthrough innovations, mm -hmm. we don't know. There's, I like to say, if we're using the pithy example of the Innovation Race reality TV show, we're currently in this in this uh, season <laughs> with, with Apple, Google, Meta, Netflix, uh, you know, all, and, and now AI almost bringing out a new season. We might get to that one in a minute, but we don't know where Apple's going to go. We're, we're in the current season. We can look back at past seasons. That's why it's interesting to look back at ancient Egypt or Angkor Wat or Greece uh, or cultures or countries to see which ones survived and which ones didn't because those seasons have come and gone and have been wrapped up and we can study them. But right now we're looking at the Tim Cook one and you're absolutely right. Um, it is the boring side of innovation. It's not sexy. It's not cool. We don't see him in the headlines as much as we see some of the other gurus, and I use that cynically, in the headlines, um, because he's just plodding along with incredible preservation. And I think if there's one thing to take out of this podcast is you don't have to be an explorer to innovate. You can innovate through preservation. But what you really need is a team approach or what is now being called ambidextrous leadership. It is the ability to say, for this particular quarter or this particular year or this particular phase of our company, we need to move over the exploration side of the road. And 
Now, uh, you know, six months later for this particular strategy, we need to move over the preservation side. And so we've built a, what I call a collaborator canvas, which is a racetrack. And we've asked people to plot their strategy on the racetrack and then ask them just for one corner of that strategy. And again, we'll use, we'll use Make Mark Happy's metaverse concept. Uh, he says, hey, let's come up with the metaverse, blah, blah. And, and it's super down the exploring side of the road. But because people are too, uh, you know, apparently too afraid to talk to him or, or give him some sort of feedback, he's, he's in his own self-feedback loop. And so he's just racing down the left-hand side of the road, hits a corner, and he just keeps going and goes into the sand pit or possibly into the guardrails and, and it cost him $13 billion. So we, we've designed this collaborator canvas where teams can plot their strategy on the canvas and then ask themselves, at this particular point in the strategy, do we need to be on the freedom side or the control side, on the openness side, on the close side, on the collaboration side, on the, non, on, the, on the stability side or the optimism side? And then as we come around the corner, if you think of a racing car, they take the racing line. No racing car would come around a corner always sticking to the left side of the road and no racing car would come around the corner completely on the right side. They take what's called a racing line. So they might, if we're taking a right-hand corner, they'll start on the left side of the road. As they hit the apex of the corner, they'll come across to the right side of the corner, and then they'll come back out onto the left side of the corner, making that corner less sharp, which means they can take it faster than any other racing car driver. So if innovation is a race, we have to make sure that as a company, we take the racing line at its absolute maximum speed without skidding off the track, and without hugging the left side of all exploration, because you won't get around fast, or the right side of all preservation. And so each leader's job is to create their strategy, put it on a racing line, and then ask themselves, when do we need to be on the left side? When do we need to be on the right side? When do we need to explore? When do we need to preserve? And who's best at driving? Unlike a Formula One where the same driver sits in the car the whole time, perhaps at the beginning of that curve, it's best to have an exploring person driving the car and as it moves round and we need to tighten it a little bit to save us going off into the into the sand pit or the guardrails we may need to swap that exploring person with a preserving person to say well now as we get into the really tight horrible part of the strategy we need to put on our preserving hats and once we've exited the strategy and it's been successful maybe we swap that preserving person over with a exploring person again and away they go for the next curve. And so it's, it's an interesting thing to plot your strategy on a racing map through this collaborator canvas to see who needs to drive what part of the strategy. So with that, I'll call the tag team approach there, where you're swapping people in and out at, at the apex, and how you mentioned Zuckerberg's going straight instead of turning, is that how you're drawing parallels to those ancient civilizations where, in the way you've un I've understood it is, there's going to be two reasons why they've either failed. They're either too tight on the preserving and not exploring. So they're just maintaining what they're doing and then not growing. Failure then could be a disruptive failure. So they might get disrupted because they're just preserving what they have today. As in the world of Kodak, for example, where they're just preserving the and, and put the actual exploration to the side and kept preserving the same business model. Yeah. Um, that's when they can get disrupted on you and you're preserving. Doesn't mean you're gonna fail as a business. That's right, if, you, if you're just preserving and not yeah. exploring, you will be, you know, mm. you can see that again, using the, yeah. the race, the two mm. sides of the guardrails. Mm -hmm. If you're just preserving and not exploring, if you're tracking down the right-hand side of the road, uh, you'll be overtaken by everyone else because you'll be going too slow yeah. and, and you'll end up in not, not necessarily skidding off into a guardrail, but you'll take mm -hmm. the corner too tight yeah. and, and you'll be disrupted. Yes. If you're just backing back to Meta and it's $13 billion mistake, if you're racing ahead and exploring too fast and that you get into that right-hand corner, you'll, you'll keep racing off and hitting, hitting the guardrails or the fence. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's really important to do both. But I think what were you, you were asking about companies that yeah. have gone... Oh, so I was saying the, the second way that I've understood from your explanation of how they would fail is the leader is too controlling and yes. the people within them are too scared to say anything. Absolutely. So they'll be, and say anything to a Caesar in ancient Rome, you'll get executed. Exactly. And well, let's, go, yeah. let's, go back, let's go back to Egypt because I like the fact that we've got 3,000 
of my 5,000 years worth of history to look at because, as I say, right now we're, we're, we're all guessing and everyone loves to go to these conferences and hear futurists talk and they always get it wrong because no one predicted the GFC or anything like that. Uh, we all love to hear about, you know, the latest tech gurus. But, but the danger of these conferences is that we just get to wear a badge and say, I heard Steve Wozniak speak or I, I heard a futurist tell us what we're going to do. I think we're better off going back and looking at what, what went wrong with a, with a, with a season that's, that's had its race and, and we've closed the season off. And, and if we go back to ancient Egypt with the pyramids, they definitely were uh, well ahead of any other civilization when it came to innovation from the way they built the pyramids to the structure, to the, to what they could do. But the, the problem was the pharaohs started actually seeing themselves as God. Uh, you know, we could almost go back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis if we're going to start playing who's God. And so a well-fed, highly organised population unswervingly followed their godlike king. The pharaohs needed to show strength to lead. Uh, they were pride-driven rather than purpose-driven, so this is what brought the downfall. And even the architecture and plan of their city reflected a history of innovation for domination rather than progress. So you've got to now start questioning the intentions of a leader. Um, if the leader is pride-driven rather than purpose-driven, there's a warning, you're about to skid off the rails. If uh, the leader is all about domination rather than progress, there's a warning, you're about to skid off the rails. Now, I'm not saying Mark's doing any of that. I mean, he could just be intentionally passionate about his, his little pet topic. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to comment on, on him at all. But we can comment on the history of the pharaohs to talk about there are some warning bells. Uh, we know that I think is it, um, there are more psychopathic leaders in leadership positions than there are in prisons at the moment. So there's a one to, I don't know what it is, one to 10 or one to 30 ratio of leaders that have psychopathic tendencies. Um, so they are definitely domination driven. They're also pride driven and narcissistic driven. So we, we need to see these alarm bells and these warning bells to say, hey, hang on, we're skidding off the path. If you go to look at the destruction of Angkor Wat, again, Angkor Wat in Cambodia was one of the most progressive civilizations of its time. It uh, blew out because they spent so much time feeding the wealthy uh, kings and queens in the centre of Angkor Wat that they stopped building the canals out to where the average person lived and, then, and the canals all silted up and the whole communication and flow of goods and services collapsed because they were too busy feeding their fat tummies on the inside. So any leader that starts looking after themselves and starts becoming pride-driven rather than purpose-driven, there's your warning bells. And I think the purpose of this research is to look at how do we get down the innovation race successfully, long-term, without skidding off and crashing. So Egypt and Angkor Wat, I think, are great seasons to study to see who did well. Now, on the other side of the fence, it's very dangerous because Jared Diamond's landmark book, Guns, Gems and Steel, which we digested several times over before reading, writing our book, uh, basically talks about, and extremely sadly, I want to say, that when any tech culture meets a traditional culture, where, you know, whether it be in what's happened in Australia, what's happened in the Amazon, what happened when, when, the, first Ameri when the Americans arrived to the indigenous nations there, extremely sadly, uh, and, and this is you know, not to say we agree with it, but Jared Diamond has pointed out that whenever tech meets tradition, tech wipes out tradition. And that's not necessarily a good thing because we've got so many, so much to learn from the indigenous population in, in our country, Australia, that, by the way, survived 40,000 years before we turned up. And that's a pretty good straw to put in your cap, that, that their culture lasted 40,000 years. Now, we might say it's not in innovative. We might make these comments that, you know, that they're not living a great life. That's not for us to judge. The really key thing here is they did survive 40,000 years. When our civilization can say we've survived 40,000 years, maybe then we can compare ourselves. And that's peanuts compared to Jim Collins's book, Good to Great. His book, Good to Great, was companies that survived 100 years. The irony of it is most of the companies he's in his book don't exist anymore. So if we do go back to look at cultures that lasted 40,000 years, we have a long way to go. And I think before tech wipes out the tradition of our cultures in our countries, we need to sit down and take a good hard look at how they survived 40,000 years before we blow ourselves up with either a nuclear arms race or an AI arms race, which is where we're heading at the moment. Yeah, so speculating on the future seasons, and that's going to be the AI coming in and wiping out what we understand as typical jobs. So anything that's text content creation seems to be the target and what it's at the highest risk at the moment. 
it can we technically could wipe out anything if we look at it from that perspective. It's... Well, I think we are. We are. This is an interesting time to do the podcast because if we are to put, you know, if the historians look back and, as I said, we've got the season of the Egyptians, the season of the indigenous people being yes. overwiped by the, the, the tech company, the tech civilizations that come in, you know, we, um, and then we have the Industrial Revolution and then the, the Renaissance. We're now seeing, uh, you know, we, we're in the middle of it. So it's very, very hard to see a culture when you're in the middle of it, by the way. Uh, we, that's why it's good to study history because you can get out and look at it all. But we, I think the historians will look back, particularly at this year, and look at the, I mean, how many times have we heard AI this year in the media compared to last year or the year before? We knew it was coming. The future has told us about it. They didn't quite know what was going to happen. But you you're absolutely right. Um, there will be a huge change now, um, and it, it like like the invention of electricity to fire, or lights, or cars, or typewriters and computers. We're going to see a huge turnover. Um, you know, we've always always said that people feel sorry for the truck drivers as that gets automated. When, when that's going to happen, who knows? But this is unfortunately what's going to happen. Um, you know, I've, I've got a little a little quote from a podcast. I'll just read you this. It's quite interesting. Investing of electricity. Uh, made our fire-making skills stopped. We don't need to memorise anything anymore after Google. We don't even need spatial recognition because of Google Maps. Um, calculators change the way we do maths. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we no longer... I was talking to a maths teacher the other day. We, we you know, those of us that had to grow up with trigonometry and long division um, don't need that anymore. Calculators do it. And all that does is it lifts the bar to the next level and the next generation can come in here. So we're already seeing Khan Academy talk about how AI is going to disrupt um, education and all it's going to do is just keep lifting the bar up and up. The, the challenging thing is for the people that are going to have trouble um, keeping up with it as, as that transition moves. Yeah, yeah the transition's difficult. So it'll be people now currently operating, even at our age, let alone the younger ones. The only exactly. sort of difference that I can perceive out of what's coming and how innovative it is compared to some other things is everyone has always said the knowledge is power. We no longer have the knowledge if you consider mm. what the AI does and no one understands what the AI is doing pre- really technically. They don't understand what it's doing. It's still, this is how we think it works, especially once it gets into the neural network part. It's they're assuming this is what it's doing inside, but no one actually knows. So the knowledge isn't within us anymore. Yeah, we have the all-knowing, all-answering object. But we invented it, but we don't know. Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of the tech people saying they don't actually know how it works. Uh, that's a pretty scary statement. To hear. I mean, that's to hear statement someone. Too, uh, yeah. And if we don't know how it works, and then and then we've got the other issue of good actors and bad actors. So depending on what podcast yep. you listen to or what YouTube, you come away saying AI is going to be the best thing in the world. And then is it Tristan Harris that did the Social Dilemma? Um, uh, definitely sure. look look at his keynote talk recently with Steve Wozniak and someone else talking about the, the AI the AI arms race and just how dangerous it's going to be. And his key point is we can look back on what um, Facebook and and social networking did to. Uh, you know, really affect teenagers and, 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 you know, we can look back and say, well, we didn't know about that, but, but now as with AI coming, we can take the warnings from what social media did and how it disrupted our society and get ahead of it, if we can get ahead of it. But the problem is we're going to have good actors and bad actors, and for every 10 good actors, there only needs to be one bad actor to, to really use AI to destroy things. And, and now as we move into countries... It only takes one bad country to think that they can get on top of it and add a quantum computer in and all passwords could be hacked within 24 hours, which could throw the world into chaos. Yep. So you're absolutely right. We're, we're, we're racing ahead. I mean, we know that a lot of the AI guys have signed a letter to slow it down, including Elon Musk, but a lot of people are very sceptical that Elon Musk's um, signed letter was just so he could catch up. So, <laughs> he wants a six-month so, pause on any development. Yeah, he wants a six-month pause. Well, I mean, I'm not saying this is true. He may be genuinely concerned. He, you know, he should be. But but you do hear some of the sceptical people saying he wants a six-month pause so he could catch up. So you just don't know. I mean, the problem is you bring politics into it, you bring self-narcissism into it, you bring... Um, that willingness to, hey, I don't want to get left behind. And we do enter into an AI arms race, just like we're entering into a nuclear arms race. But the problem, as you pointed out, Anthony, is the AI arms race, um, we're not building this one. We, we, we could build a nuclear arms race and we could decide how many weapons we wanted to build or how many we wanted to cut down. But the AI arms race, we sort of built it and said, now go and build your own. It's a bit like nuclear weapons building themselves after yeah. we built the first Once one. Once we get to that point, then... 
oh, who knows what can happen? It's going to be a runaway in one direction or the other. Exactly. From what I've been reading, there's few researchers out there that are like, if there's even a 1% chance that this thing can go in the wrong direction, we shouldn't be working on that at the moment until we understand how to prevent it going in that direction. Well, it's Otherwise, more than one, the matrix. I think it's like, definitely more than one percent. But but it see this this comes back to the to the issue of collaboration and the prisoner's dilemma. Um, if I don't do it, someone else will. Or or the tragedy of commons. You know, it, it, we'll stop fishing in the ocean to let the fish grow back. But hey, what what what's it matter if I fish? You know, what what's one fish going to do? But then everyone has the same concept. So it it may well be that we can slow it down a little bit. But then North Korea or other countries think that well, heck, we we we've been abused by the Western society for a hundred years. Now it's our turn to get ahead. And it's it's like some of these countries saying, you know, it's all very well to slap climate change regulations on us now after the Western society has abused it for um, 100 years and, and now we want to get ahead, uh, they may well use that same argument. And so we'll see the whole thing tip upside down. But I think the scary thing is, and Scott Galloway talked about this, we're riding on a tech AI car with no airbags, no safety standards, no registration, lots of cars driven by other people hell-bent on one metric, engagement. And so when we're designed on that, um, we've just recently discovered that Snapchat now has an AI chat you can talk to. Um, so when your friends will go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, you can keep talking to the AI Snapchat robot. And uh, someone's already done research that that robot was grooming uh, they, they pretended to be a 13-year-old child saying they were going out on a date with a 20-year-old, uh, twenty years, someone 20 years older, how do I prepare a romantic evening? And the Snapchat um, basically was grooming this 13-year-old child for a night out. Uh, yep. Now, it, that's because for every one safety officer these companies have, they have a floor of uh, tech officers that want one thing, and that's engagement. So a bit like the pharaohs that were only interested in domination, um, that's how Egypt crashed. Uh, it, the pharaohs weren't purpose-driven, they were pride-driven. And if our tech companies are pride-driven, we'll crash. Uh, and we're not we're not immune from crashing. Our civilization, if we, as I said, if we look back in history, it's, it's probably only a couple hundred years old. And you compare that against other civilizations that were thousands of years old. But when we're in it, we can't see it. But but there's the danger. If we're purpose, there's the there's the parallels we can draw from ancient Egypt. If we set ourselves up like the pharaohs and play God, uh, we are likely to crash. And there's going back to the exploration preservation side. We are exploring too fast. Um, we we know with nuclear arms race we explored and then the preservers came in and said we need a nuclear treaty. I just don't know how easy that is to do with a tech one because people can keep discovering it and exploring. I think it's basically impossible to do it with a tech one. How do you stop it? They talk no, about. I don't know whether you, they. No one wants drug, to stop it. If you bring a new drug on the market, you've got to get FDA approval. Uh, but you can bring in a, if you bring a new car on the market, it needs to go through registration. The tech's moving so fast that the government and the bureaucracy and the politicians can't keep up. I mean, nothing more embarrassing than watching the politicians grill Mark Zuckerberg in that in that um, hearing. They didn't know what they were talking about. He almost had this smirk on his face because he thought, guys, you don't even know, you know. When was the last time you pushed a button on a computer type thing? So it is a bit hard. They have become a law unto themselves. But if you look at just recent history around the whole crypto world, that lost control in its own right. It got out of control, got taken over by a bunch of cowboys that walked into an industry and tried to make a lot of money. Hmm. And there's no reason why AI won't be the same. And it's still not even yeah. very regulated outside no, of just taxing not. people. And it's, it's, and it's, it's been, been almost 10 years now. now. Yeah, true. Because and it hasn't got the impact. I know how. Yeah. 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 So, so, so I, I think if, if we go back to the underlying forward, principles, again, let's go back to Egypt. If we go back to the underlying principles, pride-driven rather than purpose-driven, uh, history of innovation for domination rather than genuine progress for other people. And so, yes, you may get, uh, you know, if, if we take Singapore, for example, a, a great country that, that the Prime Minister plurals, you know, from Lee Kuan Yew through to the current one, you know, at this stage, uh, yep, definitely definitely down the controlling side of the road, uh, Singapore, but, but it, it's about... It's about passion for improving the quality of life for every Singaporean. It's not about pride-driven or or, um, or or domination's sake. So Singapore is a great example of a country that is really tracking down the 
conservative or preserving or control side of the road, but they're doing it well. Um, but the problem with the tech companies or the crypto is it, it's about how much money can I make? Uh, one metric one metric for a lot of these, engagement. Yeah. How, many, how many people can we get looking, eyeballs, how many people can we yeah. get looking at our site? Okay. Um, and we saw that, that with Meta, for every one safety officer, they've got floors and floors of tech guys that are doing one thing, engagement at all yeah. costs. And that's where it's going to drive out of control. So thinking about this huge exploratory area now, how can we tie that back into if your creativity is blocked or to help you... Uh, how, do I, how do I word it? Um, with more creativity, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like how can you explore, get into that space more using these tools or anything like that? Is anything Without in learn? fear. Like a lot of people might be in fear because it's unknown, right? And to get out of fear, we need to build our knowledge of what's there. Like we need to understand it, we have to dig in. Otherwise, the fear is just, I'm just not clear what the future looks like. It might be doom and gloom. I think that's how do we get people out of that frame of mind into the, how am I use this as benefit? How am I driving more purpose mindset. behind this in my business, in my family, in my country, for example? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think um, if we go back to the who killed creativity, fear was one of the biggest killers and one of the subcategories of fear was fear of the unknown. It does paralyze people. Um, we, we just don't know where to go. As I said, we've seen a lot of layoffs in the tech industry lately. Uh, I think we were talking before we started the record button that all those um, evangelistic young millennials and Gen Z that got the perfect job and were basically saying, wow, they're treating me like family or you know those horrible team building metaphors all of a sudden got laid off. They're not going to come back into the tech world with the level of love and uh, evangelism that they had when they first got the jobs. And Therefore, there's, there's, a, there's going to be a level of scepticism, a level of cynicism with the Gen Z, uh, a level of fear that we don't know where it's going. And that may see us move towards more of the preserving side of the road uh, for the general population. But the, you'll still always have those explorers and entrepreneurs that want to go full speed ahead. And as we mentioned, our, our biggest key takeaway in the research is there will be, particularly for the people listening to this podcast, I think you said it's a lot of tech people out there, mm. maybe startups, there will always be that tension between the explorers and the preservers. The question as a leader is to how do you manage that tension so it drives the company forward rather than rips it apart? And right now we're already seeing the polarisation of politics in America. Um, we're probably going to see the polarisation of tech hitting between people that are going to just get onto that AI bandwagon and just love it and say, where have you been all my life? And like the crypto, we're going to see a huge, a lot of money being made, like the dot-com um, back, back when that started, a lot of money being made, a lot of money being lost, a lot of successes, a lot of failures. Um, uh, but we're also going to see a lot of people that are too afraid to embrace th this super highway and, and really go down that preserving side of the road. And I think we're going to see a much bigger polarisation, just like we're seeing in politics. We're now going to see a polarisation running down the tech side. And that's going to be really interesting to see uh, where, how that tension's managed. You're not going to have a lot of people in the middle of the road. And, and what we're hoping is, is if you're going to have people really running down both sides of the road, almost where they can put their hand out and touch the guardrails, um, will they have respect for each other? Will they work as a team? Will they realise that there are times to go down the left-hand exploring side of the road and there are times to come across to the right-hand preserving? Or will we become so polarised that we think we can just win the race only on the left side or only on the right side? If you look at politics, it's going to be a hard divide down the middle <laughs> from examples that we've seen. Yes. That's a fascinating topic in the way you describe it, I think. Um, in any new dawn or new technology there will be that separation yes people are going to re step back preserve think of just be in that moment and sit in fear and others are just going to take it run with it and see what they can do with it um that's generally the reality i don't know if there is a middle ground in there i don't know what that seems to look like well, i think bringing team... because again if you just went down the middle or the, if we're talking yeah. a race we said yeah. if you go down the left hand side mm. of the road you won't win the race because mm. you can't go fast enough mm -hmm. if you go down the right hand side of the road you won't win the race mm. if you go down the very middle of the road you also won't win the race because yeah. it's all about taking that racing line yeah. and if we go back to those racing car drivers mm. that they come across the left take the apex mm. go into the right mm. if you if you google the concept the racing line it's a really interesting 
and concept of how the uh, mm-hmm. even even a push bike rider, uh, a skier, when they're going down a slalom trail, everyone takes that racing line. So I don't think we want to just cruise down the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, what we need to do, if we go back to that question, is get that ambidexterity of leadership to recognise mm-hmm. we need both sides of the road, know where the guardrails are. I mean, we've got a, I don't want to push it, but we've got a, a profiling test called an ICLI, Innovation Leadership Climate, Innovation Climate Leadership Index, mm-hmm. uh, on our website, which can actually plot you on the path, what are your strengths and weaknesses, and plot the team. And Jaya has um, looked at HR profiles or science profiles or finance profiles or innovation leadership profiles to see where they sit. But it really is back to what we talked about at the beginning, getting either an ambidextrous leadership mindset where you can move backwards and forwards, or if you're extreme on one side, getting a team around you to make sure that as a team, you know where you're going. And then to look at your company culture, well, what type of company culture do we have? Are we, are we typically more of an exploring company or are we t- typically more of a preserving company? What, what, what were we? What are we? What do we need to be? I, think, so I don't um, think going down really, the middle of the road is going to help at all. I think it's yeah. going to be just as dangerous as going down the left or the right. So it's really yeah, about knowing... It's a balance, to... right? Like anything in life. <laughs> yeah, it's knowing when to yeah. swap from one to the other. And if you're a startup, it's knowing when to bring in the preserving nature, mm-hmm. the preserving role, because you're going to be very exploratory if you're in a startup. That's just given. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to look for it. We've got a what we call a spring model. Uh, I'm just seeing if I can find it. But I think uh, having a bit of an understanding of where your team sits and your leadership team sits in, in that innovation um, metric that you have online, I think it'll be quite... Well, if you look at the if you look at the um, the trajectory of a startup, it, mm-hmm. it starts as a startup which is exploration. I, I wish I could show it to you, but you can yeah. look at our website. There's a, a spring, mm-hmm. and and we we go on to the left side as a startup, and then we come down to consolidation, which is preservation, yes. and then we go to expansion, which is exploration. And then we come down to systemization, which is preservation. And then we go to breakthrough, which is exploration. Then alignment, which is preservation. And then adaptive development, exploration. And then establishment, preservation. So a startup will actually go through about eight stages. And I think, again, it's really important to say, if you're the leader, are we in the exploration mode of our startup or are we in the preservation? Or more importantly, we've finished our exploration mode. If we stay in this mode any longer, we're going off into the tracks. We need to now move across from... Uh, expansion to systemization from breakthrough to alignment or now we need to move from alignment to adaptive development so look a lot of words thrown out in the podcast i feel sorry for people if they're trying to take notes without <laughs> but the it's fascinating topic you know, right? <laughs> finding the balance between that uh, left and right can be yeah, challenging i think it's, i mean I, to simplify yeah. it down just yeah. keep thinking of the yeah. of the driving yeah. a racing car down the road yeah. exploration on one side preservation on the other side and then to think about ambidexterity as a leader you you can't be just down the left just down the right or just down the middle it's knowing when to move how to move and then maybe who's the best team person to help you in that particular situation and respecting the other respecting people on the other side would would i think be really important as well yeah i think you're going from your other example it's knowing where you are in that turn Mm. Once you have that awareness, it's the awareness. Yeah. Just from having you explain what you've explained during this forty-five minutes that we've been talking, I now have an un- a better understanding of where we are in the business, and we yeah, have no idea so what too. stage <laughs> we're trying, and where I've seen other startups and what they're trying to do, and where they, why they failed almost, yeah. as well. Well, tell us more. I mean, you're you know we're we're a journalist. We work with tech. We work with banks. We work with pharmaceutical and not-for-profit. You know, this is a tech podcast. Tell us a little bit about how you see this model fitting yeah. into the, so, into your your from listener. our world, your I would world, say, yeah, yeah. From our world, we're the exploratory. We're probably mm-hmm. more exploratory. Andrew and I, both of us, uh, we're probably both attracted to the new shiny things. But then Andrew's the one that pulls it in and says, "All right, we've got to keep going. Cash flow, run the business." Yes, I rein it in so a little. He reins it in, but you I'm the one that's otherwise you just blow up. A very exploratory um, person, and we th- throws out the ideas and all right, new product, let's go. <laughs> Exactly. And, and do you find that tension is working well? And, and is, it, is it going to work even better as a result of this podcast? I think it will because we've got other people we can lean on to help bring more of the tension in to control it. Mm. And I think, That's as I said, the real key thing that Jay has researched, I mean, there's a you know, 300 page PhD and a, and a book and a whole website and assessment tools and collaborator canvases built around it. But I think I think the key thing is learning to see where you are and what you can do and working as a team. And, and respecting each other as that team um, and acknowledging that tension will always be there. 
Yep, that's a great point. It's, it's a brilliant topic. Be there and needs to be there. There's plenty you could actually talk about. You can go on for hours around this and dig into examples. But I think um, what one thing that um, brings to light for me is, yeah, the startups, they all start up in exploration. That's where they are because they're well, trying to, to. Yeah, a so model they have to start there. Um, so they're on that path and that journey. One thing you mentioned, I don't know if it was on camera or off camera, was um, the exploratory leader may not be the right person to be leading the business when you need to get over to the preservation side. So Absolutely. having a balance in people, I can see why some businesses have blown up, as Anthony would say, um, in that startup space, because you're just always exploring and you're not really preserving and putting everything in place to actually continue to just offer a sustainable service, for example, as a business. Um, yeah, so there's quite a bit in that just to know where you are as a leader. Um, are you that exploratory? The question is, how many, how many entrepreneurial leaders do you read get kicked out of their own company? Yeah, and that's the reason why. And that's a good summation of why. They've got the vision, is. they've got the passion, yeah. they start exploring, they love what they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah. you know, none of us are perfect and therefore they probably yeah. do that at the expense yeah. of yes. recognising being a team player, yeah. uh, recognising the, the value of collaboration. And mm. as the company gets too big, as you mm. said, they have to start doing cash flow and mm. all the things that they don't like doing. Yeah. Um, and, and before you know it, they get resignation letters uh, or people just can't keep up with their pace because they're moving at such a breakneck pace. Brilliant. And so I think it really is important to either bring in someone who's, going, I mean, for us, we're a husband and wife team. That's yes. another whole topic we can talk about. That's the whole topic. Uh, it's a very interesting. I don't know how you I do mean, that. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, you two saying yourself that, that yeah. you've got the explorer and the preserver. I think, yeah. as again, we've, we've dived deep into some big words in this podcast, but the real mm -hmm. key thing is here, either, either we're an ambidextrous leader, as in we know when to move backwards and forwards, mm -hmm. or we know when to say, hey, guys, I'm going to offload this to you. Mm -hmm. I've done the exploring. I mean, we worked with a coffee company where the guy was, dare I say, a, a, a hipster um, that, that took a coffee company to become really successful and a really premium brand, yes. but his hipsterness was just, I could only get him so far. Mm. And he loved going out and buying the coffee and traveling to all these countries and he, the flavors and everything. But he then brought in a, um, a CEO who was a, um, you know, was, was, was you know, a, a, just a pure business person. And eventually they sold the company for a lot of money and did really well. But it was, again, that collaboration of the two working together that made it really successful. If anyone wants to find about your book, The Innovation Race, I think it'd be a great read. Where is it just on Amazon? Probably, I would imagine. It's on Amazon. The Innovation Race is on Amazon, the Kindle. We haven't done the audio version yet. Uh, our website is Tyrian, T-I-R-I-A-N.com. We do have an Innovation Race around uh, website. It's the-innovation-race.com. Uh, but probably better off to go to the Tyrian one and then look under the topic suite of innovation and you'll see workshops, keynote talks, uh, these self-led collaborator canvases is what I'm excited about because I can only scale myself so far with a keynote talk or a workshop. But people can now, a leader can now, you know, grab that collaborator canvas with the racing line on it and, and, and did a little bit of an online course and then help use that collaborator canvas to plot them, to plot their strategy or plot their team around the canvas. So if, if anyone wanted to take a takeaway, if you want to read a 300-page book and study who wins, loses and gets eliminated, go for the Innovation Race book. But the collaborator canvas might be the most um, useful tool that someone could grab or just to go online and, and, and do the ICLI assessment to see whether you're an explorer or a preserver or do it with your team and then superimpose all the assessments over the top of each other to see um, who's most likely the explorer or whether you're very or very biased on one side. Hence, warning, you might go off to the left or off to the right. So assessment tools, book, website and the collaborator canvas I think would be really helpful. Brilliant, Andrew. I thank you once again for joining us on the DevReady podcast. It was a pleasure to have you on. Always bring some uh, really good insights to the podcast and different ways of thinking. So the creative side generally, generally jumps out of you. Um, and I find it fascinating how you take something really simple and explain uh, and build an analogy to explain something pretty complex. So thanks again for joining us and really appreciate your time. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you for having me. And Thank you. Hopefully we'll come back with something new next time. Oh, I'm sure there will be something new around the corner. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Andrew. You.